We are in Revelation chapter 2, and we are looking at the letters to the seven churches, which is Jesus's letters to the seven churches in modern Turkey. And what he has to say in these seven letters is timeless. So whether it was the church in a particular location 2,000 years ago, or the church today, it's uh, relevant. And we've already looked at one letter, which is that to the church at Ephesus. They were sound, they were active, but there was something eating at them from the inside. It was a cancer, a spiritual cancer, and it was a lack of love. And maybe, I'm no prophet, but maybe that is one danger for us because we are blessed with a faithful church here and we are blessed with much activity. But let us watch our hearts that there isn't uh, this uh, terrible disease of not doing things out of love. Now we're going to move this evening to the next letter. We'll start it off this evening. And this is the letter to the church at Smyrna. So look at Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. It's the shortest of the seven letters. That is why our reading was from another part of Scripture. Let's just read it. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Did you notice anything in that reading which was different to what we've had so far? There's not one criticism, not one, regarding the church in Smyrna. Now, that did not mean that it was a perfect church. What Jesus Christ is doing here is encouraging a congregation that is really going through a difficult time. Incidentally, the word Smyrna, according to Wearsby, means bitter, bitter. And there was bitter opposition to the gospel in this city. And so Jesus, knowing uh, his children wants to encourage them. He wants to uh, give them an injection of encouragement. Now, sometimes that's what Christians need. Uh, they, they need much encouragement if they are going through a tough time. Now, just a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna is the only one of the seven cities that is still existing today. It's called Izmir, 
uh, and it's on the west coast of Turkey today. And like Ephesus, it was one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. It had a population of 200,000, which was huge for the time. And it was uh, famous uh, for uh, being a place uh, of learning. Uh, its schools of science and medicine uh, and economics uh, were very well known. Uh, apparently, it had a theatre as well as a library and a stadium. Uh, and the theatre was the largest in Asia Minor. And according to tradition, it was the birthplace of Homer. Uh, so I don't know if that helps you. Uh, and the cult of imperial worship, that's a Roman cult where you had to worship the Roman emperor. That was big also in Smyrna. So one point I want to bring, first of all, tonight. This church that isn't criticized by Jesus Christ is going through a difficult time. Did you get that? The church that isn't criticized by Jesus Christ is going through a difficult time. This is my first point, the persecuted church. You know, how do you assess a church? Not just 2,000 years ago, but today. A church might be going through much opposition. And in our eyes, that might look like a bad thing. But actually, in Jesus' eyes, it's a healthy church. And the reverse is true. A church might be uh, have a, having everything going well outwardly. And yet, in the eyes of the Saviour, that church is in a bad place spiritually. So we can take encouragement from that fact. Now, Jesus speaks uh, with such uh, tenderness to this church. Look at how he encourages them. This persecuted church. Verse 9. I know, I know your works. And then two words I want us to notice here. Tribulation, that's trials. Uh, the word pressure comes from this, uh, or stress. Now, that's a big thing today, isn't it? And rightly so. Uh, we are living very stressed lives. There are pressures on all fronts. Now, I'm not belittling what we are going through, but the church in Smyrna was experiencing horrendous stresses horrendous we'll note them in a moment and then another word is poverty poverty and the word here for poverty isn't just uh, not well off it's being in dire straits it's not being able to make ends meet it's not knowing where the next meal is going to come from so these were the kind of difficulties that the believers in this congregation were going through now, in one sense, every one of us will be opposed if we are true believers. Paul wrote these words to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All that will live godly shall suffer persecution. That does not necessarily mean physical persecution. It may not even mean psychological persecution. But one way or another, just because we're Christians, just because 
we have Christ in us, the lights of Jesus Christ. And we're in a dark world. There will be tension, right? There will be tension. But the church in Smyrna was about to enter a period of intense physical persecution. Now then, let's look at those two sources of persecution, the poverty and the tribulations. And we'll just apply them to ourselves as well. Poverty. What, what was happening here? Well, because of the imperial Roman cults, people were forced to say, Caesar is Lord. Caesar thought of himself as God, right? And the people were under tremendous pressure to confess Caesar as divine. And so you had no hope of promotion in terms of work or education unless you paid homage to Caesar. And what was happening in the church in Smyrna was these believers were being faithful. They refused. They refused to say those words, Caesar is Lord. Now, it may seem a small thing to us, but actually to say that meant that they were denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they were blacklisted. As a result, they were overlooked. And that caused them to be in abject poverty. There was uh, no uh, welfare state like we have. And many of the believers in this city were really suffering as a result. Now then, that may not happen to us, not to that degree. But think for a moment. Don't you know Christians who haven't been promoted at work just because they are ready to stand for what is right? We know, don't we, of that happening. Uh, a school teacher friend of mine, uh, he left teaching because he would not inflate grades. So there are ways like that where even in our circle today, Christians uh, can be uh, suffering. But even in our lifetime, we have known people who have really gone through what the church in Smyrna was going through. Let me read from Douglas Kelly's commentary. He refers to Christians in Romania and uh, the communists. And this is only a few decades ago. If you ask Maureen or Galina, they will be able to, to give you accounts of this. Uh, this is uh, what would happen uh, to uh, these uh, Christians. They were often barred from attending the universities. And these universities offered access to well-paying jobs and important positions in society. Even though some of them were very intelligent, uh, many faithful believers held only low-paying jobs and were subjected to frequent harassment and arrest on trumped-up charges. Now, that goes back only a few decades ago. The, these believers would be faithful to their saviour, and they suffered as a result. Uh, I heard from Anya how uh, when, I think when she was in school, 
uh, that simply because her parents were Christians uh, that she would have lower grades. It's terrible persecution. So this was the kind of thing that was happening to the Christians in Smyrna. And the way things are going in our country, that may well be happening more and more to us. So there was this poverty. And then another source of persecution. Uh, Look at the reference to slander. I know your works, verse 9, tribulation and poverty, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. So there was persecution coming from the Romans, from the secular world, and there was persecution coming from the religious people. Uh, These Jews, there was a large Jewish community in Smyrna, and what the Jews were doing were attacking the character of the Christians. Uh, Look at how John puts it. He says, they are Jews, they say it, but they are not really Jews. Uh, Paul in Romans 2 talks of a man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. So these were religious people, and it's not just Jews. We can think of nominal Christians, outward Christians, but they are not alive in their hearts. And there is always this source of opposition from the religious people to true Christianity. Uh, let me recommend uh, that you listen to Basil Howlett's uh, the interview last Sunday evening. Uh, Basil Howlett, as our previous pastor, ministered in uh, a denomination where liberalism was rampant. So you had nominal Christians. And in Basil Howlett's experience, and it's very moving if you listen to it, uh, those liberals tried their best to get rid of Basil Howlett as their pastor because they hated the gospel message that he preached. So there is always going to be opposition from religious people. Indeed, if there was to be a revival, an awakening in our midst, I don't think the persecution would come, first of all, from the world. It would come from religious people. So it's a great encouragement to us. As to the believers in Smyrna, if you're being attacked both from the world and from religious people. Now let's look at the nature of this slander that the Jews were involved in. What what were they doing? Well, we saw this morning how Jesus Christ was slandered by the Jewish religious leaders. What did they say of Jesus Christ? They said he's a blasphemer. Before his crucifixion, when he was still ministering, the religious leaders accused Jesus Christ of exorcising demons in the name of Satan, didn't they? That was slandering the pure Son of God with being aligned to the enemy. Jesus Christ said, it's not me that is blaspheming. It's not me that is of Satan. You think you're of your father Abraham, he said to the Jewish leaders, but you're actually of your father the devil. 
That's interesting, isn't it? These religious leaders were slandering the true Christians, saying that they were the ones who were blaspheming the name of God. Whereas in fact, it was the believers who were revering the name of God. And it was these religious people who were blaspheming. I don't know about you, but that scares me no end. Because whether we like it or not, we are religious. We wouldn't be (laughs) singing these hymns and praying and reading our Bibles and listening to a sermon if we were not. There's nothing wrong with religious activity. But when it's not from the heart, then it can get very twisted, can't it? the early Christians were accused. Do you know what they were being accused of? We're going to be doing something after the service that the early Christians were doing and people were accusing them of cannibalism. That's slander. They were saying because they were eating the flesh, the body, and the blood of Jesus Christ, they were cannibals. If you, if you read about some of the greatest evangelists in this country, George Whitfield in the 18th century, he, he was attacked by the religious leaders, by the Anglican leaders who didn't believe the gospel. Now, many in the Anglican church did, but those who didn't attacked him virulently. Spurgeon in the 19th century, he, he was slandered in the press, in some of the religious press, Uh, This is how one uh, article wrote about Spurgeon. Now, we revere Spurgeon, don't we, as a gospel preacher. But listen to this article. We had thought that the day for dogmatic, theological, dramatizing was past, that we should never more see a large congregation listening to outrageous manifestations of insanity. That's what they called Spurgeon. No more here the fanatical effervescence of ginger pop sermonizing. That's what they called Spurgeon, the religious people. Ginger pop sermonizing. Or be called upon to wipe away the froth that the people might see the color of the stuff. And then these religious people went on to say, and this is why I'm quoting it, when the Exeter Hall stripling, that's what they called Spurgeon, stripling, talks of deity, let him remember that he is superior to profanity and that blasphemy from a parson. That's what they're saying of Spurgeon, that he's blaspheming, that blasphemy from a parson is as great a crime as when the lowest grade of humanity utters the brutal oath of which the virtuous stands aghast. I know it's a complicated quote, but those religious papers were vilifying a man for preaching the gospel. So there is poverty, there is slander from the religious people, the poverty from the secular. And then there is something else here. I only want to mention it in passing because we'll look at it next time. There is prison, prison, and ultimately death. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. Uh, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Be faithful unto death. 
So that's my first point. This church that doesn't receive any criticism from Jesus Christ is a church that's not just going through difficulty, but is suffering intense opposition. And that opposition is about to become physical persecution that's going to throw many of them into prison, and that prison is going to result in execution. That's the kind of Christianity New Testament Christianity was. Some of the greatest Christians in the New Testament, some of the writers of these New Testament books, they, most of them, ended their lives in martyrdom. John was the exception. Peter was martyred. Paul, martyred. James, martyred. The persecuted church. Now let's just start on my second point. We'll have to carry on next time. And I want to encourage you in the second point. Because we are not going to suffer that yet. We might... But we all have some sort of opposition just because we believe this gospel. And I want to encourage you with the encouragement that Christ gives to these believers in Smyrna. So my second point is the Lord of the persecuted church. That's good, isn't it? The Lord, the one who's sovereign. This is what I want us to concentrate on. Do not fear. Don't be afraid of any of these things. Why? One reason. Because I, says Jesus, am in complete control. Look at how he describes himself. Verse 8. To the angel, to the minister of the church in Smyrna writes, These things says, the first and the last. What does that mean? It means... I'm from everlasting, I'm to everlasting, there never was a time when I didn't exist, there never will be a time when I'll cease to exist, I am, I am the great I am, I'm the sovereign Lord, everything is under my command. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? Caesar is Lord? No, King Jesus He's the king of kings, and every earthly throne is under his dominion. Now, what we need is a bout of that in our souls. That's what Jesus is encouraging these Smyrnan believers with, his sovereignty. You see, it wasn't the Romans or even the Jews who are behind the persecution. Look how Jesus refers to the Jewish community. They, they would have been appalled by this, but Jesus sees it. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. They think they are worshipping Jehovah with all their numbers. It was a large community, but actually it's the devil that they're worshipping. It's a synagogue of Satan. And it's the devil who is behind the persecution. It's the spiritual dimension. And this is what we often forget. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We're not fighting so much against the liberal uh, people today. They, they are affecting our society. They are taking our laws away from the rules of God. But in the end, they are not the problem. It's who's behind them. 
those people who are religious and who think they are standing for God, they are not the problem when they're persecuting Christians. It's the one behind them, the devil. Do you see that? It's not flesh and blood. We wrestle not against that, but against principalities and powers of darkness. We've lost this dimension, haven't we, today? And you know what? The devil isn't going to have the last word because Jesus is even controlling the devil. Um, the devil has been compared to a dog. Now, I've got to be careful here because I do not like dogs. <laughs> Uh, I'm not insulting dogs by saying uh, that the devil is being compared to them sometimes. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the devil is compared to a lion. Uh, but this is the purpose of my illustration. This dog is on a leash. The devil's on a leash. And it is Jesus Christ who's holding the leash. And the length of the leash is determined by Christ. So the devil can only harm believers as much as Christ allows him. Even if believers are killed, and it was going to happen to some in Smyrna, the devil wasn't going to be able to touch the most important part, the soul. Now, one thing I want us to look at very quickly before going to communion, I want to look at the length of the leash. There's a phrase here, 10 days. Did you notice it in the reading as well? I know your works, tribulation and poverty, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. That's the length. And it's Jesus Christ who determines the length. Ten days. Now, that is not ten literal days, right? It's not ten literal days. The language, uh, the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Ten days. In our reading, Daniel and his friends were tested for ten days. They didn't eat uh, the meat and drink the wine uh, that uh, the courtiers in Babylon had. Ten days they were tested, eating vegetables and drinking water. Now, ten days in Scripture speaks of a relatively brief period of time. So, if you're going through difficulties, as you will at one point in your Christian life, you will have a time of being opposed You've got to remember, our light affliction, right? This is 10 days. Our light affliction is but for a moment and is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. However burdened you may be by pressures, and at the time it feels unbearable in comparison to the weight of glory. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's lightweight. One second in glory will make you forget about all the problems that you've been afflicted with in this life. But the ten days as well speaks 
of a limited period of opposition, even in this life, even in this life. The key is the word testing. That's why Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days. Now, what is God testing in us? It sounds awful, doesn't it, that we have a Savior who tests us. But actually, it's an encouragement. It really is. Uh, Peter, who knew a thing or two about this, uh, he wrote in his letter in chapter 1, writing about the Christian life, that we greatly rejoice. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. Though now, listen to this, for a little while, 10 days, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus Christ doing? He's allowing us to go through the furnace because he wants our faith uh, to be tested, to be authenticated. It proves that we're really Christians if we endure a time of trial. But more than that, he wants to get rid of all the dross. Uh, If you think of uh, a smith uh, putting uh, ore in the fire, uh, he wants to get rid of all the impurities and he wants those to be burned away so that what will remain is the gold, the gold. And your faith is gold. It's produced of the Holy Spirit. It's Pure gold, that's what the Lord is wanting in testing us. Are you glad when opposition comes? Not because you have a perverse liking to difficulties, but because you realize this is my Savior's way of getting rid of the dross and of purifying my faith, making it stronger, making it purer. Apparently, the blacksmith, he purifies the gold for as long as it takes for him to look at it, and once he sees the reflection of his face in it, he's happy. When he sees the reflection of his face in it, he's happy. My friend, Jesus Christ, the great purifier, he will allow us to go through a period of testing, the 10 days, and the point will be reached where he will see something of his image in you and me. That's the purpose of persecution, so that something of Christ is seen in us. Beautiful, you know? I, uh, I was helped by Douglas Kelly again, uh, quoting from the Killing Times. Uh, that doesn't refer uh, to Cambodia, but to Scotland uh, during uh, the Covenanting period. Uh, that was, uh, was that about 300 or so years ago? And there was a minister uh, called James Rennick uh, of Edinburgh, and his head and hands were cut off and they were put on a pike in Edinburgh. That's testing times for you. Later, his hands were taken to his father, who was also in prison. The soldier said, do you know whose these are? And the father replied, they are the hands of my own dear son. Good is the Lord, who will do nothing but good to his children. 
beautiful, beautiful. Is there something of the reflection of Jesus Christ in you and me in the way we react to trials that are far, far less than what James Rennick's father had to endure? And then, not only does our faith become purer and Christ is seen in us when we go through the fire, but we see him with greater clarity. I love the way one commentator put it. How wonderful that when we are blinded by tears, we can nevertheless see our God. In fact, our tears become crystal lenses through which he is magnified. And in the midst of suffering, we realize as never before the greatness of his power and the tenderness of his love. Oh, Try tears when you're going through it because with those crystal lenses you won't see the things that the world glories in. You will see your saviour as more beautiful and more real and more glorious than ever before. How many of you would have known Helen Rosevear, a lady much used of God in revival in the Congo. She even spoke once in this pulpit, which is saying something. <laughs> and she gave me one of her books and she signed it with this verse, that I may know him, know Christ, and the power of his resurrection. Don't you want that? The power of his resurrection. But ah, wait, you've got to go through this first and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not as easy, is it? Now, let me conclude. Ten days, the church in Smyrna was going through a period of testing so that they will come out stronger and brighter for Jesus Christ. Maybe you here are going through a period of testing. Maybe God has hidden his face. Maybe you're being opposed by people. I don't know. I don't know. But listen, Jesus is in control. And he will only allow you to be tested for as long as it will require your faith, your faith to shine. And you know what? There's an 11th day. <laughs> There's an 11th day. It's been a hard winter, hasn't it? With the lockdown, with the cold, with other things. But was it last weekend? Spring! Spring was on the way. <laughs> After the ten days of winter, there's an eleventh day. There's a spring coming. And it's the same when we're going through difficulties. We haven't got this hymn in our uh, digital collection, but let me quote it. Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me on the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he has sent. His hand can turn my grief away and patiently I wait his day. I wait for the 11th day. 
Whatever my God ordains is right, though now the cup I'm drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all undrinking. Tears pass away with dawn of day, the eleventh day. Sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Smyrna, the place of bitterness. They had to drink a bitter cup. But it wasn't going to last forever. There was going to be an eleventh day. And the bud, you and I may be tasting now, may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And to think that the ultimate eleventh day is heaven, an eleventh day that will never end. Glory, glory for me. Let's finish there. Uh, We are COVID aware, so let's sing now our next hymn, In Heavenly Love Abiding. I think one line says, green pastures are before me. Green pastures are before me. And then we'll go straight into the communion. Please stand to sing, and please don't sing out loud. <laughs>